Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. As we begin our message tonight, question for you. Are things going to work out for you? Are things going to work out in life? As you think about that question, I also wonder, do you consider yourself an optimist or a pessimist? Actually, there is uh, an exercise that we could do really quick. It comes from the Minds Journal, and actually it's a picture that I want to show you on the screen. And as you look at this picture that's going to come up, I want you to think and about which direction do you see this cat going? Is this cat going upstairs or downstairs? It's okay. You, this, this can be interactive. It's okay. Like you're allowed to speak. I hear down, I hear up, I hear both, and certainly you can see it both ways, perhaps, right? So supposedly, how you view which direction you see this cat going says a lot about your approach to life, that if you see this cat going upstairs, then you are likely optimistic about life. You see the potential in everything. You see growth possibilities all around you. And if you see this cat going down the stairs, then you may approach life more pessimistically and you tend to be calculated, wary, perhaps distrustful and expect the worst. Now, some of us are persistently pessimistic. Those of us who fall in that camp tend to say, no, we're realists, not pessimists. But, (laughs) and I think all of us are pessimists in certain situations, right? It's easy in the world that we're living in right now with all of the events that are happening to start to feel pessimistic that things are really going to work out. That's what we want to get into today. This approach to life. How do we navigate life? This is the next message in our series called uh, Just Like Us, Ordinary People Changing the World. We've been in this series for a little bit. It'll carry us through the summer. It's a series about the 12 apostles, those 12 men that Jesus gathered out of all of his followers to uniquely be with him. And then he gave them authority and sent them out out with the authority to heal and to cast out demons, but also with the authority of the word of God, the message of the gospel that would change lives. And and these guys really were ordinary guys. Most of them were from kind of the back country of Israel. None of them were religious leaders. None of them were really uh, part of the upper crust of society. And yet Jesus called them and then God used them to do incredible things in the world. And we are the beneficiaries, right? We're the heirs of the authority that they received and the message that they received. And we too, ordinary people called to change the world as we're sent out. 
So each week we're looking at one of the 12 apostles, looking, getting a glimpse of their life, coming to some understanding of what that means as a follower of Jesus, to be his apostle, to be, or to be his disciple, to be sent out by him. And so today we're looking at Thomas. And Thomas is also known as Didymus, which literally means the twin. So apparently Thomas had a twin, but we have no idea who his twin is. Somehow Thomas gets picked, twin doesn't. I don't know, sorry. You know, one of the twin, twin rivalry is a, is a tough thing. But Thomas is who we're gonna look at. And Thomas was certainly a pessimist. And so we're gonna jump into John chapter 11. And you can follow along if you'd like on the screen. Let's listen as, as God speaks to us together this evening. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we, we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus, Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time, there's a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. And let's pray as we move into this together. Heavenly Father, Thank you that you give us your word, that you use it to speak to us. Lord, in this moment, we invite you to be the one speaking, that if anything that I say is not of you, that you'd cause it to be forgotten, that all that remains is your word for us and your spirit shaping us from the inside out. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So this is an incredible story, and, and it's a long story, so we actually had to, to edit it down a little bit just to keep it focused, because we could go a lot of different ways with this story, but tonight, we want to zero in on Thomas, right? We want to look at what this helps us reflect on in our own journey, because here's Thomas, the rest of the 12, and Jesus when our passage opens, and they get news. They're not in town. They're at another town, and they get news that their good friend Lazarus is sick, and Jesus, in the course of conversation, seems to be kind of playing word games with them, right? He says, well, you know, 
Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to go wake him up. And it's understandable that they're like, well, why do you need to go wake him up? Like, aren't there a lot of people that could, you know, give him a good shake or something like that? He's going to wake up on his own. No problem. He's going to get better. And Jesus, when he said sleep, it was a euphemism for, for death. He knew, Jesus knew that Lazarus was dead, even as they brought the news that he had, was sick. And so he tells them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and then adds this, and you know what? I'm glad I wasn't there to stop it. It's like, wait a second. Really, Jesus? Yeah, I'm glad I wasn't there because now maybe you'll really believe. We're going to pick that up in a minute. But he tells them, let's go. And this is where Thomas jumps in. Right? We get this one sentence from Thomas. Lord, oh no, he says, let us also go that we may die with him. Let us also go that we may die with him. I mean, okay, Thomas gets at times a pretty bad rap. But in this moment, what courage, what faith. Right? Inside this guy who is, as we're going to see, certainly pessimistic, there's also a courage and a willingness to go with Jesus, to stand with Jesus, to die with Jesus. And this is, only one, this is one of the only three times that we really get a glimpse of Thomas, that we hear from him. We hear again from him in chapter 14 of John, where he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And then in chapter 20... He said, the disciples have gathered together and they tell Thomas, hey, we've seen the Lord. Thomas was absent when Jesus showed up. And Thomas responds, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. See a pattern in Thomas? At very least, there's a negativity to every single thing he says, isn't there? Like, Hey, let us go so we can die. Not exactly positive, right? Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Some exasperation. Unless I put my fingers into the holes where the nails were, I'm not going to believe. Right? There's this negativity. There's this skepticism. There's this pessimism that, frankly, is pretty relatable. But why is he so pessimistic in this moment? Why is he so pessimistic? Because Jesus didn't say anything about dying, did he? Matter of fact, he seems to already be alluding to the fact that something good is going to happen. He's going to go wake Lazarus up. So why is Thomas automatically, pessimistically thinking about dying? Well, we've got to give Thomas a little bit of credit. Because I think for all of us, pessimism is rooted in a lot of reality. And it was rooted in reality for Thomas as well. If you go back to chapter 10 of John, what you see is this interaction where Jesus is once again poking the religious establishment and those who are opposed to him. And he's rubbing them the wrong way. And so much so that at one point, they pick up stones to try to kill him. Then, a little bit later, the stones didn't seem to work, so they try to grab him, to seize him. I'm sure because they wanted to hold him still or something like that so that the stones could be effective. But in both cases, Jesus slips out of there and so do his disciples with them. Now, you, I got to figure Thomas is like, whew, that was close. Like we just got out of the frying pan and now Jesus, you want us to go back into the fire. 
because they had just left the place of hostility. And now to go to Bethany where Lazarus was buried was to go a whole lot closer, about a mile and a half away from the hotbed of opposition to Jesus. And so Thomas is going, man, it's all behind what he says. Well, Jesus is going to die, I guess, because that's, that's what's, what seems to be on the table. And I guess we're going to go with him. Let's go die together. His, his logic is not totally flawed, is it? <laughs> but it, it's also deeply rooted in his pessimism. And why do we get pessimistic? Why does he get pessimistic? I think there's situational pessimism and then there's pessimism that becomes a way of life. Situational pessimism is like, How's this exact thing going to work out? And so you can focus on this particular job interview, or you can focus on this conflict with this friend, or this, you know, this health crisis, or this transition, or this decision that has to be made. And is this particular decision, this moment, going to work out? And so much of the time, when we're considering the situation, what are we doing? Well, we're analyzing it just like Thomas was. What's the, what's the evidence? What makes me feel like this is going to work, this isn't going to work? And there is something that for many of us, situationally, we get drawn to the negative. We get drawn to all of the reasons it's not going to work rather than the reasons that it could work. And a lot of this has to do with our understanding of how things are going to work, right? In this situation, Lazarus is dead. So in their minds, there is no category for how this situation is going to work out. It, does, it just doesn't make sense. So we're going to just go there. It's going to be a waste of our time. Jesus is going to die. So are we. Because this is what Thomas can wrap his head around. Death is final. Death is the end. There is no undoing what has happened. And the forces that are gathering to oppose Jesus are increasing their intensity, increasing their strength. And so it's just going to happen this way. And man, we get there, don't we? We get there really easily. Because we can't seem to see a path that could lead to a positive resolution to this particular situation. I think this might be part of why our proverb earlier, Proverbs 3, said, lean not on your own understanding. Because it can lead us astray, can't it? It was leading Thomas astray. It leads us astray because we come to conclusions about how it's going to work based on what we can figure out in our heads. But problem is, I've only got a limited perspective of all the options. But I like to convince myself that I've got a pretty good view of all of them. And I think we all do that. You know, Martha's like, hey, I just don't see how this can happen. Don't open that stone. He's been in there for four days. It's going to stink. Right? That's all her brain can think about. It's practical. It's real. It's visceral. It's emotional. All these things are combined together. Jesus, don't do it. Even though he's right there telling her. Didn't I tell you that if you believe, you're going to see something spectacular. 
Yeah, but it's gonna stink. Because I can't wrap my head around you could do something that would defy my understanding. And so for many, this leads to our skepticism, certainly situationally. But it also breeds the skepticism that becomes an overall approach to life, doesn't it? And we can become pessimistic, not just about a particular situation, but now it's like every situation, every new thing, every new place that you need to go, every new group of people that you don't really want to have to go meet because you don't want to have to try to start again. All these situations, it's not just that situation, it's all of it, and it's become the way of living. And for some, that's conditioned. Like it's, it's because of your past experiences that this is the approach that you have to life. Like that it just hasn't seemed to work in the past. When you get your hopes up and you really expect something good, it seems like every time that happens, man, the rug gets pulled out from under you and it doesn't work. And then, then perhaps you experienced traumas. Man, traumas are everywhere. I mean, some of the things that that the people in your life that you have experienced are so deep, so painful that it's changed it's changed you. It's changed your brain, you know, your physiology of your brain. It's changed your approach to how life could possibly happen or not happen and it's because you've been conditioned by this trauma to only see all of the things that now you're most afraid of. It's those negative experiences over and over again that for some of us have taken such deep root that it's hard to think that this time it could go differently. And for others, it's because you've come to carry this idea that, you know what, really, you don't deserve it to go differently. You know, that when you look at the the life that has been lived seems like the, it, it shouldn't go well. Now, this was a common pattern of thinking. It has been throughout history. There was a, a moment in Jesus' ministry where the religious leaders are looking at this man who is, is physically, right, he, he's disabled. And they say to Jesus, all right, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born this way? Do you hear the incredible assumptions underneath that line of questioning? It's sin that leads to bad things happening. And so if bad things have happened in your life, the logic says it's because you deserve them. It's because you earned them. It's because you must have done something, and if we know what it is, we can draw a clear line from your badness to the bad consequence, and that becomes so deeply seated in us that we just start to believe, well, I just deserve life to be a whole mess. Because when I look at all the lines that I can draw, look at my past, look at my present, look at the things that people don't even know that I keep in secret, if you knew those things, I'm actually getting off pretty good. But I don't expect anything good to happen. I don't expect life to work because, you know what, I don't deserve life to work. And on one hand, maybe that is true. We don't deserve life to work all the time. You know, we we do tend to live self-centered. We do tend to push God to the back burner 
We do tend to try to be in control of our own destiny. But what Jesus is trying to make clear in that interaction is that that can't explain everything. Because why do bad things happen to good people? Well, it's not because you can draw a straight line from sin to the consequence. And so weak, though, have become conditioned to believe, "Ah, I just don't deserve it. And, And so in an effort, I think, to actually protect ourselves, we adopt pessimism. Pessimism is actually, I think, really about trying to insulate ourselves from that feeling of inadequacy, of being unworthy, from the trauma and the pain of the past. I think it's a way of trying to help protect ourselves in the present and into the future. There's actually a a line from the movie Spider-Man, No Way Home where Peter Parker's girlfriend, MJ, in that movie, she has this philosophy that she lives by, and her philosophy is this. If you expect disappointment, then you can never really be disappointed. If you expect disappointment, you can never really be disappointed. I mean, that's like, that's, that's the armor of the pessimist, isn't it? I'm expecting disappointment. I'm expecting it to go badly. I'm expecting everything to not work out. And the re- so I'm expecting that so that I don't have to actually experience the reality of the disappointment when it doesn't work out. That way, it can't hurt me. But the problem is pessimism can and does hurt us. It breeds within us this negativity, it breeds a displaced anxiety where we're no longer assessing situations based on reality and evidence and possibilities. We're basing them purely out of this place of disappointment expectation. And so it breeds then that sense of depression and despair. And it doesn't just hurt us. Pessimism, it really is kind of, it's contagious. I mean, if you've been around people who are constantly negative, first of all, you you probably want to distance yourself from them, but man, it is easy to get sucked into that cycle, isn't it? When everything is complaint, everything is pessimistic and negative and skeptical and everything, it's so easy to just kind of jump right into that whirlpool with them, isn't it? Well, that means that if you're circling like that, others are finding it difficult not to jump in the whirlpool with you too. And so it does hurt. And so how do we overcome this tendency to both situational pessimism and an approach to life that is so pessimistic? I mean, there are some really helpful tools that come out of the disciplines of psychology, that come out of the disciplines of therapy, You know, that help begin to change the internal dialogues and the self-talk to help to actually process and work through the traumas that have been real for so many. And if you have never actually pursued help in those ways, I just want to encourage you to do so. There's no shame in it. But part of the problem with pessimism is we just continue to say, I deserve this, but 
There is a possibility that you could be in a healthier place and those traumas and that background doesn't have to constantly be this burden that you carry, but then we reinforce it, yeah, but I deserve it. <laughs> and it's just this self-fulfilling prophecy. But there is, there is hope for you. And changing that internal dialogue is so important because here's the thing. If you hear nothing else tonight, hear this simple reality. God loves you. And if God loves you, how about you trying to love you too? But there's these efforts. I think we think of, uh, of pessimism and we think, okay, how do you overcome it? Well, you overcome it. Our natural tendency is to think about the opposite. I got to become optimistic. Got to start looking for those silver linings. I got to start looking for the good in life, the favorable things. I got to project into the universe positivity and manifest the good. Right? That's, that's very much the language of optimism in our world today. And, and some of it is good. Paul, in, in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 4, says... To instead of allow our minds to dwell on all the things negative, to dwell on the things that are noble and good and pure and lovely, like to actually spend time thinking about those good things shapes our heart and shapes our mind. So that's good, but it breaks down when we try to simply put on a happy face of optimism when life is really hard. And some of you have experienced some things where, where even Christian people have basically just told you to get over it when things have been hard. That you shouldn't feel that way. You're a Christian. You should you put a smile on. There's victory. Well, that's basically the same. Just put that positivity out there. But when the reality of what you're facing is there's suffering and there's trial and there's pain and there's death, optimism is really not adequate. See, because optimism is just hoping that it's going to work out well, that it's going to be good, that you're going to find a way that this situation or life is going to resolve but I don't think the opposite of pessimism for a follower of Jesus is optimism. The, optimist, the opposite of pessimism is faith. Jesus said multiple times in this passage, hey, I'm glad that I wasn't there to stop him from dying so that now you'll believe something. Martha, didn't I tell you if you believed, you'd see something incredible? He raises Lazarus from the dead, and we're told that the people who saw it, many of them started to believe. In other words, they believed that the way they understood the world to work, the way they understood how death was supposed to happen, and that's the end of it, those things no longer mattered. They believed there was some, not just something that was possible that was greater, someone that was greater had made things possible. And that someone was Jesus. And so the opposite of pessimism, if we want to truly overcome it, is to come to the person of Jesus and to see and experience within him the resurrection power that defies your understanding. To in all your ways, instead of 
trusting in your own understanding and all your ways, acknowledge him. Submit your ways to him, and he will make your path straight. See, and this is a faith that can be held on to in the darkness, in the trial, in the suffering, in the terminal. Optimism can't really be held on to in the terminal. But faith can be held on to in the terminal. That even though something bad is going to happen, even though there is suffering and pain, that God is going to move in it and through it and do something more. There was a, a Puritan named William Perkins. And there was a, he encountered this young man one day who had been condemned to death. And the young man was actually on his way to the gallows. Right? And the prisoner... He, he looked out on the crowd and he was so distressed that Perkins thought that he already looked like he was half dead. And Perkins stops him and, and says to him, hey, what's the matter with you? Are you afraid of death? And the young man explained, no, 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 he wasn't afraid of death. He was afraid of something worse. He was afraid of what would come after death. Well, Perkins replied to him. He said, come down. You know, let's talk. I want to share with you something. And he, he talked to him about God's grace. And in that moment, he prayed with this man. And as he prayed, he prayed first with such incredible passion, confessing sin, confessing the consequence of God's judgment that would come and, and his just punishment. And as he's praying, the young man just burst into tears. And after seeing the effect that this had on the young man, Perkins then continued his prayer. And he, he prayed, calling on Jesus Christ the Savior, inviting Jesus to extend his hand of mercy to the young man and to give him the power that would deliver him from God's condemnation. And at that, the prisoner's eyes just burst open even more with tears. As the reality flooded into his heart and his soul that he could see how the black lines of all his sin were crossed out and canceled with the red lines of Jesus' crucified, precious blood. And in that moment, it was so graciously being applied to the man's wounded consciousness that now he was bursting with tears of joy, the consolation he had found. He, as a matter of fact, his expression was so powerful that the gathered people that were there to witness his execution were moved to praising God to see this incredible change in the man. Then the man rose from prayer, ascended to the gallows with joy and liveliness, and was executed. Optimism wasn't going to get him through that moment. Faith in a God who would love him so profoundly that he would send his only son to die for him. Faith that a God who had power over life and over death and who could bring resurrection, that was going to sustain him even through the darkest moment of his life. See, the opposite of pessimism is not optimism, but it is faith. 
Faith not in our own understanding. Faith not in what we have experienced, what we have been conditioned by. Faith not in our worthiness or unworthiness to have life work out for us, but faith in the Son of God who is himself life and is resurrection life at that. Friends, if you find yourself just constantly struggling in pessimism, I invite you to look with eyes of faith to a cross that says God loves you. To look to the empty cross that says he is risen from the dead and so will you be. To look with eyes of faith on a God who loves you and believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's so much going on in our lives and in the world that makes it hard to remain positive and even makes it hard at times to believe. We acknowledge that we get caught in situ situations of pessimism where we're leaning and trusting on what we understand to be possible and not possible and how we can see ourselves achieving a particular outcome or not. Lord, we acknowledge that there are times where we just, though we believe and we know that you love us, we also find ourselves still stuck in that pessimism that life's just not really working out. Lord, help. Will you set us free? Set us free by giving us eyes to see giving us hearts to believe that you are the one who holds the power of life, resurrection in your hands to defy our understanding and let us remember that you love us in and through the darkness. Lord, help us to see you and believe. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we sing this